it or not, this is Like Trees Walking. Michael J. Nelson here. Yes, I'm alive, and I believe Pastor Dave Berge is alive as well because I was speaking to him seconds ago, and now we're going to speak to him again. Pro- David Berge, pro- how are you? Proof of life. Uh, yes. I am. I can hold up a newspaper. Uh, <laughs> I am alive. Uh, I'm alive. I'm. I am living. Are you well? I'm. Uh, you know, this morning I'm. I'm well. I'm talking to you, which is a joy. Um, as I told you before, and everyone just grab uh, grab a, a bucket in case this makes you nauseous. It's okay to not be okay, Dave. <laughs> Fingernails on a chalkboard for me, and I, I don't mean to make light of the situation. I mean to make light of people repeating these noxious phrases these, over we, and over I think again. we'll say, we'll call them nostrums at this point. Yes. You know, uh, I, I think we've reached... I think we've reached that point in uh, in 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 the pandemic life right now. I'm certain there are radio buttons snapped off, if there is such a thing as radio buttons anymore. But you know what I mean. I do. And I'm sure there are remotes thrown into big screens all over as people grow tired of this. But uh, yes, it is a joy to speak to you. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk about the big issues of life. Um, boy. And there are certainly there a lot so of them many coming big at issues, us. hot and fast <laughs> and heavy. Especially, you know, given that we live in some ways the epicenter of uh, what what the epicenter of the earthquake that has radiated across the world, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, mm-hmm. Man, so much has happened since May the twenty fifth, and so uh, it you know it feels like you know because we 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 want to talk about we we <laughs> we're talking about the perennial issues before, uh, but then. It, to me, it just struck me that we need some wisdom for living. Uh, yeah, things uh, you know? things got real, as they say in the in the motion pictures. Yeah, stuff stuff got real real quick, and now the rubber is meeting the road. Boots are on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, and and particularly in Minneapolis, following the killing, uh, death of George Floyd, the you know calls have come hot and heavy in Minneapolis itself about abolishing the police, defunding the police, whatever that looks like uh, in our particular city. So that's a that's a pressing existential issue. And so, you know, I felt as though um, all of a sudden on May, you know, May the 26th, that's when things really started breaking through, that all of a sudden a lot of people that I know started having a lot of strong opinions about something that I hadn't given. I mean, I'm going to be quite honest when it comes to like policing. I had thought about it because I had followed the person I'm about to uh, interview in in a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, I had listened to him before, so I had followed this with with some interest, but I had not given any great depth of thought to um, to issues surrounding policing and what are police for and why do we have them and what would reform look like. Um, and so, but then all of a sudden, it was like you kind of had to think one thing, um, or some people thought you should think one thing, and then all of a sudden, violence started exploding um, across our city. Uh, I mean, the murder rate is way up. Violent crime is way up in Minneapolis. And Mm -hmm. this just, you know, I said, well, if I'm going to think about these issues clearly, I got to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. Um, Because I want to be a responsible uh, citizen. And as a Christian, I think that's part of my part of my vocation is to uh, is to be a responsible citizen in this pluralistic democracy. Right, and so you you went to a a person who has thought a ton about this, who also has a ton of experience, and uh, regularly thinks about it and talks about it. And so, what uh, what better person to have? So, 
Um, and you know, should we just roll it and get into it, or do you have any opening thoughts? I do have some. I do have some opening thoughts. So the guy I interviewed is a, a, a man named Peter Moskos. He's a professor of uh, of uh, criminal justice, or he's a professor at the professor at the uh, John Jay uh, College of uh, Criminal Justice in New York City. And so um, he uh, he served as a Baltimore City cop. You'll hear this in the interview, but for uh, twenty months in the early two thousands. So he's he and he's written extensively on. Um, issues related to policing, police reform, police-involved shootings and killings. He is no, uh, uh, he is no just cop apologist at all, um, uh, by no stretch of the imagination. Um, but he has experience in these issues, and and he has an appreciation for what do we have uh, police for. So it's uh, it's an incredibly he's just incredibly thoughtful um, in his takes. It, you can also hear that. He's a bit at the point of despair, I think, from what's happening because it's uh, it's amateur hour. You know, it's like when someone when you thought and worked about something and you've um, tried to make policing better. And then all of a sudden people come in and say, it's all a wa-, you know, it's all a waste. Or they come in with their their half baked ideas. You can see where and that dominates the discussion. You can see where that would lead one to despair. So um, I sympathize with him in that. Uh, you know, it would be like for me in the church, you know, someone who's worked in church revitalization and development. If all of a sudden people just came in and said, everything you've done is horrible. Um, when you've put a lot of work and effort and seen a lot of progress, uh, I, that would lead one to despair. But it, it's not just a council of despair in this. It's a very clear, lucid conversation. It's wide ranging. We go over a lot, a lot, a lot of territory in this interview. I just, Peter Moskos is He's an incredibly smart person, incredibly interesting to talk to. So I enjoyed the heck out of myself as I was talking to him. And the only warning I would have is there's a, a very tiny slight bit of colorful language, much less than Chris Arnotti. Um, <laughs> right. But we'll throw okay. the ex- we'll throw <laughs> the ex- I think there's like a GD in there and maybe uh, maybe, you know, a couple others. Swear- It'd get a PG-13 rating. Let's just say that. Um, this podcast. Okay, so it's like a John Hughes movie from the eighties. I, I think even milder than that. So we'll throw okay. a, we'll throw <laughs> we'll throw the explicit warning on there just because. But I mean, it's yeah, it's he's just a, he's just an interesting guy. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And you can find his work at copinthehood.com. And he's written a book by that name, and then also another book that which is really interesting called In Defense of Flogging. He's a bit of a prison abolitionist, but not a, a punishment abolitionist. Uh, but we didn't get into that at all. But a very fascinating character. Well, full disclosure, I have yet to listen to this interview. I was unable to make it. And, you know, these, uh, obviously, Pastor Dave and I have been doing things remotely. And so uh, sometimes it's even possibly just easier to have one voice. So you'll just hear Pastor Dave and uh, uh, Moscos? Yes, P- Peter, Peter Moscos, yes. I think, Moscos. And yeah. I think, if, Mike, if you had been there, you would have wanted us to stop the conversation about an hour in. So I'm, I'm glad you weren't <laughs> there because you would have been texting me, let's wrap, let's wrap it up, let's wrap it up. And I just wanted to keep going and spinning these yarns. So it was... Uh, it was great. Look, I'm yeah, I'm about the you know, I'm I'm a producer as well as a uh, you know as as a talking head. So I'm always like you know, given the given the signals to the talent. So, uh, but glad you had a, a wide ranging discussion with him, and I look forward to you and I being together in a room and talking about things uh, other than these things. Yep. I hope that that's that, that coming. Can happen again. That's coming. That's coming. Yeah. Uh, once I I'm going on vacation, people. Uh, and so I'm avoiding, scrupulously avoiding any human contact. Uh, I'm keeping it to a minimum because I do not want Corona to rob me of my vacation. 
Uh, and then once I am back, uh, I will. Mike is one of the few people I will see face to face. I promise not to give it to you. That's <laughs> you my cannot, solemn promise. You, can, you cannot promise that. <laughs> no, I can. I can will it. Okay, we'll, you don't know. <laughs> You're not an epidemiologist. All right, <laughs> you heard it. Let's... You heard it here first. Mike will not give me corona, and I appreciate yes. that. He has made a solemn oath and promise, and vow. <laughs> And I will keep that. All right. All right. Uh, here it is. The the lengthy, wide-ranging interview. Um, it's kind of a Charlie Rose type of bit, you know? So I love it. All right. All right. Here we go. And David, I will see you soon. All right. I'll see you soon, Mike. All right. Here you go. Hello. Uh, Dave Berge here on Like Trees Walking. Thank you so much for joining us today. And in our uh, quarantine, continuing our tradition, uh, we're, we are taking a break from the big issues in terms of existential questions of life, faith, uh, theology, philosophy, morality, and getting into other big gigantic questions that intersect with the pressing matters of today. And uh, as our audience knows, um, Mike and I, we live in, I live in Minneapolis. Mike lives in the uh, Twin Cities area. And, uh, and ever since George Floyd's death, his killing on May the 25th, um, that has opened up a whole host of questions in our city, um, but also in our country about policing, the role of police, uh, the racial dynamics that are at play. And so I just was thinking, who can I talk to who actually knows what they're talking about? And uh, I have been following for some time, Peter Moskos, who uh, is with me here on the line. And so Peter, you are a professor at the John Jay College of uh, Criminal um, Criminal Justice. Did I say the title correctly? The, yes, John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. I've been a professor there since 2004. Okay. And so... Um, yeah, and uh, Peter has wrote, written extensively on issues related to policing um, and, uh, and, and has, a, I think, a unique perspective. You, uh, Cop in the Hood is your blog, and uh, also the name of your first, was that your first book? Yes, it was. And also, Peter is the author of In Defense of Flogging, so we'll see if we get into that uh, today, a, a, a book that is just as provocative um, as its title. And so, uh, Peter, you, before you wrote your PhD, um, uh, you served as a police officer in Baltimore. Yeah, I um. So that the the timeline is, I, I started graduate school in sociology at Harvard in 1995, and uh, wanted to study something urban related because I've always been a city boy, and uh, went to Baltimore in '99 to follow and replicate the work of a. Uh, John Van Manen, who was who went through the Seattle Pit Police Academy in the late '60s, and he's um, now a professor at MIT in the business school there. Um, and when I got to Baltimore, after they had approved my research, they disapproved on the first day of the academy. Um, and to make a long story short, basically they said, "Why aren't you going to become? Why not become a cop for real?" And I said, "Who would hire me, knowing I'm going to quit?" After a year, though, I ended up staying a bit longer and then write a book about it. And um, apparently they were. So um, I went through the hiring process while in the academy, which is on sort of not that's not doesn't normally happen. Um, and I was there until uh, June 2001. Um, and I, so I was on the streets for about 14 months in the Eastern District, which um, if people know it at all, they usually know it because it's uh, where the wire was a lot of. The Wire was filmed, even though it fictionally took place in the Western District, but they're they're pretty similar. Yeah, and so because um, The Wire is, I mean, uh, I mean, one of my favorite 
television shows. And so my first question is, is The Wire real? Um, well, it's not I mean, it's, real, it's, but it's, it's inspired by fiction. true stories. But yes, it's fiction. It, it's very realistic. Um, certainly, I, I would... I always said it was about 80% realistic. I think it went down to maybe 75% in the last season. But oh. um, that is so much more than any other cop TV show or movie. Um, and the parts that aren't real are, are trying to prove a greater point. Um, so I don't even hold that against it. But it's one of the only shows that, well, for, it, it humanizes people, everybody. But that includes the police officers. And it shows their motivations, Um I used to say presented the city a bit darker than it really is. Uh, 20 years later, I'm actually like, no, maybe that was just right <laughs> on the mark. Um, maybe I was just a little too optimistic at the time about the state of the city. Um, but it, um, it, it shows the internal workings of the police department pretty well. And it shows the street life pretty well. Now, I say that from a police officer's perspective, but there actually have been some articles about watching the wire with drug dealers and so on. And it, and it seems to be, um, yeah, it, yeah, it's a it's a decent look into a part of world that um, most people, um, particularly white people, but most people generally have never see, never go into, and, and have nothing to do with. Um, and I think that in and of itself is a worthwhile accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, a lot of times, ever since this has happened, there's obviously everyone kind of running to say, "Hey, this is what book you need to read right now." And I mean, the reality is, most people start books and they read, you know, the first chapter if you're lucky and then they put it down. And so I say, uh, watch the wire. Uh, Cause then you get a, you get a realistic, not realistic, but you said realistic, but a, uh, you know, there's no heroes or villains or there's her, her, uh, heroic acts and villainous acts am amongst all the institutions that compromise, um, you know, the complex social organism that is a city. And it's a, yeah, I mean, it, it, it humanizes people at every single level and uh, shows you that there's a lot of mixed motivations going on um, in every single, in every single level of life. Um, if if um, people don't want to commit to five seasons of the wire, um, there's also his lesser known, uh, much shorter, show called the corner okay uh, that I actually watched while on duty um at the time and i don't know when it was 2000 or 2001 uh and that's less about policing but it's very much about the neighborhood and violence and drug addiction and it, it also um does a pretty good job yeah so let's let's get to kind of the circumstances in minneapolis in particular so i'm assuming that you've watched the george floyd the, the I'm not sure how many of the videos you've watched that have come out now, but we have the initial video that obviously sparked the um, globe. I mean, local uh, local protests, which turned into riots, and then, but also now, I mean, at a global a global level, really a global um, reawakening or reigniting of the Black Lives Matter movement on a scale not seen. Um, I don't think not even close, even in 2014-15, when it was quite prominent, and so within the incident itself, what do you, what do you make of that incident? Um, having been someone who's observed all sorts of police involved killings um, over the years. I mean, what do you make of this one? Uh, it was very, it was unique and different in a bad and horrific way. Um, <clears throat> I have watched a lot of these, um, which probably, you know, yeah, I've watched too many snuff films in my yeah. <laughs> professional capacity. Um, usually when I watch videos of, of, police-involved shootings or killings, um, my professional job is usually to sort of say, okay, what was the police officer 
seeing or thinking at the time. Um, even if it was wrong decisions, uh, there's a, a, usually I can say, well, this is what the cops saw. Um, this is maybe what the public doesn't realize. Um, you know, some, I mean, sometimes they're bad and sometimes they're, they're not bad. Um, they're never technically good because someone dies, but in, in the sort of legal parlance, they can be good shootings if, if they're justified and even necessary. This time, and I think I actually do speak for a lot of cops who just were, we, we couldn't understand it. Um, we could not put ourselves in issues and we're like, what the hell are you doing? And why are you doing this? And why are you still doing it? Um, and I think that is what led to <clears throat> very quick condemnation from police. Even police unions said this was bad. Um, that's never happened before. Um, it's, and, and the more recently, and I haven't, I've only watched bits of it because I don't think they're actually relevant. More recently, like in the past few days, um, you know, the more complete video of what led up to it came out and some cop defenders are like, oh, see, that changes it. He was, I, I don't think it changes anything. Um, I, I assumed that George Floyd was out of his mind and resisting before all this. Um, and, you know, apparently he was, but that doesn't actually change what Chauvin did when he showed up at the scene. I don't understand, first of all, why he pulled him out of the car. Um, and then, and then they, you know, eight minutes where he died. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't get it. Now, but what also makes this unique, though, in the past, protests have been about accountability and justice, broadly defined. And in this case, the cop was condemned, he was arrested, and he was charged. Um, that is, as unsatisfying as it is, that is our system of justice, uh, which is what makes these protests different in that there are no clear goals and objectives. And I know that ending white supremacy and racism is, you know, a broad objective, but that's, that's, it's not something you can concede to and say, okay, we've done that. Um, police reform uh, is a little bit narrower, but also incredibly vague. Um, ending police violence is um, counterfactual to why we have police in the first place. Um, and I think that may, is a point that maybe needs to restate it, not, not to defend bad use of force, but we do have police to use force. And we now seem, and this is not about George Floyd, but in general, we, um, we seem to be in a position now where cops are getting in trouble when they're not making mistakes. And that, I think, is, I mean, that, that's an existential crisis to the role of law enforcement in society. And I, I think people want to face that crisis, but we do have police for a reason. And um, I'm worried now, about this rise in violence, which is entirely predictable, um, related to less policing overall. Um, Why did, I mean, so that, I think that gets to a, a kind of first, getting back to first principles, at least. Why, so, you know, why do we have police? What is the role of police in law enforcement? And I think that a lot of people are making the claim or have made the claim that policing itself is an illegitimate, tra- you know, activity because it's the root of a frotten, uh, the rotten fruit of a, of a bad tree, you know, uh, that was from the beginning. So it's either rooted in slave patrols. And so inherently white yeah, supremacists it, or it's, uh, you know, I mean, the, look, <laughs> I, 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 to, I want to push back on that. Go, no, no, um, yeah, please, please, please. Um, I, I think it's bullshit. Uh, <laughs> and there was a horrible article by Joe Lepore in the New Yorker recently that sort of made this position. It's not a new argument. And look, if, if you want to see everything in a, in a, in the array, it's an oppression model, which is, I, I respectfully disagree, but it's a fair, you know, it's a fair perspective. Reasonable people can differ about the worldview. Um, 
certainly then, yeah, police, you could see them as oppressive agents of the state. And if the state is, um, if the purpose of the state is to maintain capitalism and white supremacy, then yeah, police play a role in that. And so it's all bad and we have to tear it all down. Um, that isn't still a fringe view, however, um, and it's gotten sort of treated a bit more mainstream than it should be. Um, police in America do not descend from slave patrols. Um, it, there were slave patrols. And in the South, it, it's a little more gray and there is a little more of a direct path. Though there was an interruption during Reconstruction and then, you know, Jim Crow, police kind of returned to their tra- role, their traditional Southern role of racial oppression. But police, as we know it today, have a very distinct and even, I say, obvious background, which is from 1829 London and Robert Peel, who set up the first police department there. And by first police department, um, it is in how the goal, the role of police and how we define them. Um, you know, the word police go is ancient. Um, so it's a little bit arbitrary in how we define it, but they were called the new police. It was very distinctly a new concept that was seen as a break from the past. Um, that is the model that came to America in 1845 to New York City. Um, it does not come from slave patrols. In fact, it was it was a distinct break from the policing that had existed before, which depending on, of course, where you were in America and the state of slavery in the state, um, you know, is connected to that. I mean, this is America. It's all connected. It's history. It's complicated. But when police came to America, it was a new concept. It was seen as scientific and modern. It was called the new police. And the role of police uh, was to maintain order. It was to prevent crime. That was, it was called the preventative police. And that was what was new about it. Because what, what the new police replaced was the ineffective system of watchmen on the sort of, had many problems, um, but partly they're, you know, they were simply there to um, protect a particular piece of property usually. And they were, sometimes they were paid for by the, uh, by this, you know, municipality. Sometimes people had to volunteer their services. And then of course, private people would hire them for security. Um, And then when there was urban disorder, the military would come in and shoot people. And then you'd pick up the dead bodies and basically repeat. And first in London and then in America, People said, maybe we can do this better. And so we defined police as a preventative model that was meant to patrol. That was sort of the big invention was foot patrol. Um, That is what watchmen didn't do. Um, There was also sort of a, you know, you had, um, there were bounty hunters, certainly. And you had detectives, but the detectives were usually paid on a commission model um, in which very quickly, uh, you know, could turn them into corrupt thieves themselves because they could get paid for returning the property. So these were the constant problems of policing until the mid 19th century. Um, And, and it, and the problem came to a head because of the industrial revolution, because of urbanization. Um, If one, if, if one wants to see police cynically, um, you could see them very much as set up to uh, keep immigrants under control. That was, you know, it was a very, xenophobic nativist uh, country, or at least part of it. I mean, we had a lot of immigrants, so, you know, there was a political battle. Uh, But there was an old school sort of Anglo-Saxon waspy side that was terrified of these Irish and Germans uh, flooding into America. Now, granted, there were greater urban problems related to immigrants and drunkenness and poverty. Um, So, yeah, but the goal of police was to make the streets safe and to change behavior, um, not just arrest offenders, but to get people to behave. 
And that has always been a role of police. So that, you know, even, and even in the South, by the way, during Reconstruction, the new police were set up. And again, the history didn't work so well with Reconstruction in America. Um, but this idea that there was this evolution from slave descendants is, is just wrong. It was, a, it was a very distinct break from that tradition. So, you know, does that matter? I think it does, because it, it, it fills the narrative of whether we have police whether we choose to have police for good reasons or whether they were imposed on us for bad reasons. And I, and that might be a sort of a fundamental part of the public debate right now. Yeah. I, I do think too, that some of the, you know, structural critiques of policing um, are kind of inherently a critique of the system itself, that the entire system, uh, you know, American system is illegitimate. And so the, as the police exist to maintain order within that system, they are illegitimate too. But I think most people, view of the American system for all its flaws as legitimate um, and don't want to get rid of the whole thing. And, and so I, 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 I hear what you're saying in terms of this is a, a fringe viewpoint, the idea that... And we saw recently, and it's one example, and it's, it's you know, a microcosm of things, but we saw in Seattle what happens uh, when we get rid of police. And it, the police serve a function. That, that's why we have them. And if we don't have police, other people will fill that void. And it very much went back to an early 19th century model of a combination of well-intentioned people, of, of gangsters and of extortion artists. Um, basically, this, you know, might made right, um, you know, two unarmed black boys got shot during this uh, and there was disorder. I mean, we, this is, we don't want police to be in private hands. Um, this is a point where a, in a democratic and even a not perfect democratic state where we want police to be agents of the state because the state in theory is an agent of the people and the alternative is putting it all in private hands and uh, that has never worked well i mean it's the same reason we shouldn't have private prisons we don't want private police it's a municipal function public safety matters the um yeah and you the, uh you're referring here of course to the uh, capitol hill autonomous uh uh or no what sorry capitol hill occupied protest what was Ch- was it chopper chas that's why I avoided that. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The, Cap- the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone was Chaz, but then it was the Capitol Hill Occupied Project. It was CHOP. Whatever you call it, Chaz CHOP. It didn't end well, but it was treated as a uh, kind of a, for a little while, at least the uh, public authorities, the municipal authorities who are tasked with basically running the city, are responsible for the city, ceded that responsibility um, and said that it was a new, kind of a new experiment in social organization I, I don't know and we and saw I, I wasn't betting on its success but i even think i went on twitter saying you know what i hope it does succeed you know why can't what's that place in in denmark christians and land or you know that's been around since the 60s that i mean why can't we have nice things too um <laughs> and i think the answer unfortunately is is guns and violence yeah. we are more violent but you know it, it was it doomed to failure? Maybe, but it's not, I, yeah, as an ideal hell, I'm glad it wasn't my neighborhood, but I was thrilled for them to try it, but it didn't work. And it didn't, and you know, oh, well, we didn't do it right. Well, until you can show me one example where it works right. Um, yeah. It's just not fair to play with people's lives for some social experiment like that. Right. And I mean, it ended, you could not think of a more tragic ending. Um, you know, these are two people who are dead um, and, uh, you know, I think, too, in Minneapolis, we've seen a, a, a marked increase in, in violence um, in the city. All sorts of strong arm rob- robbery, carjackings are through the roof. Um, there's a huge increase in shootings and in, and in murders. We're a, I think we have more murders right now than we had all of last year. Um, and, uh, you know, a good and friend. And it's not of- inevitable. No. And, it, and this is what 
a sort of makes me depressed as people either ignore it. Um, they say it's not happening. And when I say they, I'm talking about people who don't live in neighborhoods where it's happening. And I do find um, I could just call it paternalism if I wanted to be generous. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's racist paternalism when white people tell other people how they should be policed and they won't do it in their neighborhood. Um, you do not hear, you know, abolish the police coming from people in nice, safe neighborhoods. It's always about, oh, how that, what they, what they want. Well, why don't we ask them? And we know that people in, in violent neighborhoods want more policing. They want better policing too. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that we have to get rid of policing, that policing are the problem is it, it does not reflect, uh, any community, but it certainly doesn't reflect people who live in, in, in places where they are at risk of violence. And it's not mm-hmm. spread equally through, through society. Um, and that's, of course, something we should try and address better. But yeah, we've seen depolicing by design. And I think politicians just face less, um, they, they, they face less blowback from, quite frankly, another dead black kid shot on the street than they do from one viral video of cops using force and a bunch of disproportionately white people protesting. Um, and that is where, that is a real failure of leadership. But it, it, this isn't just a theoretical argument. I mean, when, when violence doubles, when killings double, I mean, these are the trauma of that violence, not just to the people shot and killed, though that should be the first priority, but to the families, to the loved ones. Um, you cannot have a functioning society where there's shootings happening every day. We can't fix the other problems until we have some level of public safety in which people can go out on the street and go about their lives um, without living in fear. Yeah. I mean, uh, here in, in, in Minneapolis, when we think of like the, the communities that have been most impacted by this uh, pullback in police. I mean, there's all sorts of terrible stories, kids at a football practice and two groups shooting across a park, you know, and the, and so thank God no one in that, in that circumstance died. But you think about those 13, 14 year old kids, their coaches and their parents who are on that field, um, you know, jumping, you know, parents jumping on top of children and then them running to their cars and driving away. Um, the kind of underlying trauma that comes with violence being a part of your everyday experience is something that I think the vast majority of Americans uh, and, and including in um, white liberal cities like Minneapolis, we have no context. We cannot even fathom what it would be like to live um, in a, in a neighborhood where, uh, you know, I mean, not even like the Eastern District of Baltimore, where what, if you're, if you're a black male, you have a one in 10 chance of being murdered by the time you're 35, right? Um, or something, some ungodly number like it's that. Just a, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, and I, I want to, re- I forget what age I actually did the math to, but it's, it's, let's just say lifetime. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's more than 10% of men are getting murdered. Um, that, and that doesn't include those who get shot and live. And that doesn't include, I mean, it, I don't think, you know, you know, people can't fathom it. So either they don't or they close a blind eye to it. I, I don't fully understand that, um, but it bothers me. And then to see it get worse, um, especially since I've been trying to, in my own small way, reduce violence, to see it just all for naught after, you know, being in this field for 15 years. Um, and suddenly it's, you know, amateur hour in the reform movement. And everyone knows how to do it. It's, 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 it's personally frustrating, but yeah, but it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a relatively safe neighborhood in New York City, though it's getting more dangerous. Um, it's about people. And you know what we've seen recently, and you mentioned that, and this is, it's one thing, is there's a lot more shooting back in shootings in the past couple months. 
that people are carrying guns who weren't carrying guns. Um, that is that level of violence. And yes, innocent people get shot. And God, to, to come from a privileged perspective where you're worried about microaggressions and, and, and little slights um, and, and injustices everywhere. Yeah. And to think about what it would be at your little league practice if kids were diving for cover and you put them back in a car, like that would be such a life defining moment for so much of <clears throat> privileged America. And you know, what might be a life defining moment for people who are part of that, but it, it's, I don't want to say it's routine. It doesn't happen every day, but it is, but it happens and it happens again and again. And they just sort of go, Oh, you know, when no one was hit, you know, in the official crime statistics, it's not even a crime. The UCR won't have a, won't have a account of it. Yeah. And, and what a, you know, and yet it's such a big deal. Um, and, and to, and we're making prop and reformers right now are making problems worse. Um, and there needs to be some accountability to say, I want reform. Well, I do too. Um, but I want reform that works. And if your reform makes things more dangerous, the first thing is stop doing it. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah let's in that sense, just go back to what you were doing. I, I, go back to what you were doing a year ago and, and it might be better. Um, but we don't, you know, the, the people who are victims don't have those voices. And, and, you know, you see now there's some criticism of it. You see, you know, protest movements being hijacked by progressive white people. Um, and that is just, it's just the height of arrogance. I, uh, I mean, this hit close to home, a good, good friend of mine, um, that I grew up with actually at church, he in a neighborhood, not too far away, it's about less than a mile away from the congregation I serve. He manages a paint store and so a woman was being uh, robbed at gunpoint. He went out, the people sped away. He thought an abduction was happening or something. So he chased the car. They, they just start blasting out of the car and, and he was hit and, and he lived just, just, you know, just uh, deflated his lung and went through, you know, he just got shot, survived. But you think like, um, you know, my gosh, so all's well that ends well, uh, you know, doesn't get doesn't get much attention. But there is even that neighborhood in Minneapolis, not far from, um, uh, you know, from where my congregation is either. And it's, you never, yeah, and you never yeah, they say you recover fully. You never fully recover from an injury like that. No. And he's um, a, I mean, he's a, and he's a mensch, you know, he's got two young kids, a wife and, uh, and, and it, 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 I can't begin to fathom what that would be like psychological, the psychological trauma, but just the physical trauma too, from your body, you're carrying that wound with you the rest of your life. And, and in a neighborhood uh, called Powerhorn, it was in the New York times, I think infamously where the, they were saying, Hey, kind of when it was, don't call the cops. That was the, um, in the initial one of the initial responses in Minneapolis at least was to encourage people don't call the police if something's happening. And so this neighborhood Powderhorn, um, which is a, has been an improving neighborhood was more dangerous in the eighties and nineties. Um, and is actually one of the only neighborhoods in Minneapolis that became more white um, over the, in, in terms of over the past decade. So it's one of the few truly kind of gentrifying in terms of demographic neighborhoods in the city itself, becoming less racially or ethnically diverse. Like there was a guy who got carjacked at gunpoint and he called the police and then he called the reporter back to say he regretted it. He regretted calling the police, um, which to me is insane uh, because that kid is not serving him well. It's not serving the community well to have people, to have armed criminals basically functioning with impunity. You know, but it's it's not even serving the armed criminals well. That's the irony, um, because the, things like that aren't one-offs. Um, they continue, and often they escalate. And if you can change behavior now, 
And that doesn't necessarily mean through the criminal justice system, but it potentially does. You know, that's what I focus on. Um, if you can change behavior now before he shoots and kills someone and spends the rest of his life in prison, um, that's the other problem with violence is the reaction to violence. You, you have to prevent this stuff and you're not going to prevent it by asking people politely. Um, you know, I'm for trying all, you know, anything. I don't care if it works. I'm for trying it. If, it, if, they, if people have ideas about community organizations and so on. But this idea that, that I, don't, I don't quite get the, yeah, the idea is we have a more just society. I don't know how we, how we do that. And somehow people don't want to do bad things. Um, some people need to be policed. And again, it's to prevent people from doing bad things. And that's for the benefit of everybody. Um, you know, poverty... The changes that have happened recently with the rise in violence, it hasn't happened in every city, which is revealing. You know, it's not something in the water supply. I think it absolutely is related to COVID and certainly the economy. But those are constants everywhere. Um, the, the, the violence increases are very, they're localized and, they, and they're in response to specific local happenings and, and leadership um, and depolicing. Uh, and, and people say, well, why aren't the cops doing their job? Well, they're being told not to get involved. Um, there's the, you know, there's an issue when it comes to violence, there are huge racial disparities in urban violence in America. And we don't even have the language to talk about that. Um, but if policing is going to respond to that, and I think it should, policing will be representatively racially dis disparate in those matters. Um, we have to talk, be able to talk about it so we can say, look, we are trying to help the victims of violence. Um, but we're not at that stage yet. And, you know, like I said before, there doesn't seem to be much political blowback from actual, actual violence increasing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you, what you're touching on there is, is it's, it's, it's so sensitive because to talk about, you know, what you don't want to do is be racist and, and say that, um, I, I mean, who, I mean, who wants to, who wants to be racist? Nobody. Um, but to just say that disproportionately the lives that are impacted by this are, Black, well, we need we need to lives. listen. We need to listen to more black people on this matter. Um, I, you know, I, I focus on the policing side, so I take a certain liberty of talking about crime and violence and policing. Um, but ultimately, that leadership can't come from white people. Um, it shouldn't come from white people. Um, it needs to, and and there are black voices out there, but I think a lot of white progressives are silencing those voices uh, because it, <clears throat> they don't fit the white liberal narrative. Um, there are a lot of strong, and I don't even want to say they're conservative. No. They're portrayed as that, you know, for shorthand, I, I'll use that. But they're not necessarily conservative, but there are a lot of strong black voices out there. And they're not getting published in prominent magazines and so on um, because they're not, you know, a couple of years ago, I tried to um, get a piece with George Kelling published in The Atlantic talking about broken, broken windows in the 21st century. Um, Ultimately, it didn't happen um, because we didn't write it. Uh, let me just say that. <laughs> but um, I had a long exchange. I'm talking, you know, a 10,000-word email exchanges uh, with um, an editor at The New Yorker who I assume uh, was a white woman. And I mentioned the fact that, you know, and we, there's a new poll out that says the same thing, that, you know, black people want more policing more than white people do. Um, and she... she didn't believe it because it and you know you know eventually i was like this i don't know what to tell you like yes maybe pew polling is 
off. I mean, you know, it's not, this isn't coming from some crazy organization. It's, uh, or, you know, to, to give an, another example of the weird bubble I think people are living in talking about reform. Um, and I don't want people to read Joe Lepore's New Yorker article on history of policing because I think it's horrible. They can, I, I wrote a response to it on um, my blog and Cop in the Hood. Uh, but um, she had, and it went to print, she had a statement and she was citing another article and she said that uh, two thirds of, hosp- of emergency room admissions to hospitals for uh, men 18 to 35, I may have some of the minor details wrong, but she said that two thirds of the admissions for this group happened because of people beat by police or security. Um, the article didn't say that, the article was fine. Um, what it said was that two thirds of people admitted because of injuries by police and security are there because they were hit as opposed to being tased or slapped with a rubber hose or, you know, beat with a phone, whatever. The injuries were mostly from hitting. Um, The number of people admitted to hospitals for these injuries is, 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 I I did, you know, roughly, you know, we're talking like one tenth of 1%. Um, If she had said the real number was two, if she had said two thirds when the real number was one third, I would have been upset. Because that's a pretty big error. Yeah. But if she says two thirds when the real number is a fraction of one percent, that, and this, you know, she wrote it, probably a research assistant. I don't, you know, misread the original article. Then you've got an editor. You've got this is the New Yorker. You've got a proofreader. You've got a copy editor. Um, how you got a fact checker? If you and. If you really think that two thirds of people going into the hospital from the ER are beat by cops, what? That's I can't take anything you take seriously because it means you've never been to a hospital and seen what's going on in the world. How could you possibly think that? And if you read that, you know your first thought should be I'm misreading this article or the article's wrong. Um, but that is the mindset and the worldview that frames this debate. Um, or at least that article. But that article yeah. helps frame this debate. So that's. There, there's just such a disconnect and this, you know, I deal with numbers and data cause, um, but I also talk to people. I like qualitative research. Um, I don't know what the role of data, I, you know, even to say, I don't know what the role of facts are makes you sound like, like we're, we've let the right almost like usurp that term. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point it matters what the reality is. Uh, and yes, you can have different interpretations of reality, but when we have good data, we have to look at it. I don't know how we, I, I'm afraid none of that matters because there's going to be another bad police involved shooting next month. I guarantee it. Um, by some standards, and I have issues with police reform as practice over the past 10 or 15 years, by the way. Uh, but Minneapolis um, was a role model of what was seen as sort of good, mod- effective models in police reform. Again, as a side note, you know, I have issues with that model, but Maybe, obviously, it wasn't good enough because George Floyd happened, but maybe it did get better, the policing in Minneapolis, based on real efforts to change and improve. But if police are never going to be perfect, and if the goal, if the only acceptable goal is perfection, we're doomed uh, because there's going to be more bad policing. All we can do is make policing better. All we can do is strive to reduce bad policing and also to hold policing accountable when that bad stuff happens. But I don't know if that's good enough anymore. And the only alternative is no policing. Um, and maybe we're going down that path. So I do think the pendulum's going to, 
you know, swing back at some point because because people when people get legitimately afraid of violence, um, they want they want more cops. Um, I don't know. Just I've never been so pessimistic as I have been these past few months because I it was I could just see what was going to happen and it's happened. Right. And and uh, to, to touch on something before getting specific to what is uh, the pin I want to put in is what is actually police reform mean? What are people talking about when they're talking about police reform? But yeah, that to say that um, it's to me a sad commentary that it's quote unquote conservative, which I think is a useless shorthand um, in so many ways. But to say, like, I care about uh, the disproportionate level of violence in in communities of color to whatever the preferred nomenclature is, you know, I care about that. If you get regular murdered, that, that also not killed by a cop, but if you just get regular murdered by a fellow resident of your city, your life also is extremely valuable. And that is a horrible tragedy. And that is the grinding unfolding reality in a lot of communities that has decreased over the decades, which is good news, but it's now ticking up. But every single one of those lives is precious and is valuable. But, and the voices who are, have been in those they should be. I'm going to just even say, no, you know what? I don't think they are. That's how cynical I am right now. Man. I don't think people care. I, I mean, many people do. But no, right. I think part of the problem is people don't see those lives as precious and equal to theirs. And it's not even equal to their life. It's equal to their sort of mental well-being of what they want to imagine is going on in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I do talk about numbers. I don't know what else I can do. Um, the other problem is I don't want racists to be my friend. Um, because we don't have an open and honest public debate about racial disparities and violence, when you do start talking about it, um, racists say, see, it's yeah. all, you know, see what's um And no, that's not the point. It's not about them. Um, it's, it's about racial disparities and, and, and who, and, and victims. Um, but you know, it's, it's a small subset of a small subset of a population. We're not talking about any group. Um, we're not talking no, about I mean, things that happen because of race, but the fact is, you know, we got about 15,000 murders in America. It's going to be up now. Um, you know, and it's gone. We've, we've made such progress in the past 20 years. And that's what also I find frustrating. Um, and you see this, whether it's um, talk about policing, whether it's talk about progressive prosecution, um, things have been getting better and they've been getting better in any measure we can quantify. Even the prison population has started to go down. Um, but in New York City, which in New York State, which is you know just one place, um, the, the incarceration has been going down for 15 years, and nobody seems to know that. And so they talk about, and you know, well, we we've, you know, we collectively, people who have some influence in policy and 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 so on, um, have been making have been making things better. Um, in most cities, and again, every city is different, but overall, arrests have been going down, murders have been going down. Um, from a policing standpoint in cities I know about, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I am New York biased. I live here. What I'm, you know, uh, complaints against policing have been going down. <clears throat> All these things, you, we're just throwing them out now. We're pretending that didn't happen. Um, the number of people shot by cops, though it's been constant since we've had accurate data nationwide, which has only been since, you know, 2015, which is, related to Ferguson and is a different outrage that we don't even have data on this stuff. Um, if you go back further and I'm talking decades now, um, man, cops in the seventies, you know, were shooting 10, 20, 30, 40 times as many people as they are today. Um, that went down in the seventies and eighties, mostly. Um, again, not, it didn't just happen. It's 
because people said we have to reduce this. And it's like none of and this is incremental change from within. It's a very unsexy and unpopular proposition right now, the idea of actually improving the systems we have. Um, but it worked. It worked. You know, it led to Tennessee versus Garner, the Supreme Court decision in 85. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, that was modeled after New York City Police Department policy that reduced shootings. Other cities, not all of them, mind you, but a lot of cities followed, followed these best practices. Um, what we should be doing now is looking at departments that do things better um, and figuring out why they do it better and then transplanting that to departments that do things worse. Um, but, you know, the idea that, um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be an NYPD cheerleader. They can do that themselves. But um, I will say that arguably, and it's arguably, uh, you know, we can argue it, but it's, 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 it's perhaps the best police department in the nation or one of the best police departments. And I say that based on things like police-involved use of force, based on low crime, declining arrests and declining complaints, anything you can quantify. Oh, so no terrorist, no big terrorist attack, you know, in the past 20 years. Um, Anything you can quantify, they've been pretty damn good at. Um, the level of lethal police force here in New York is about half to a third the national average. Um, there's, there's really, you can't, last year police in New York killed five people out of a city of eight million. Um, I don't think you can get that lower in America because given violence and guns, at some point, and this is another thing people don't want to address, um, the goal isn't zero. Um, sometimes we pay cops to shoot people. Mm -hmm. uh, because they need to be shot because they're killing somebody at that moment. Um, that's unfortunate. You know, it's still a tragedy. But so we've got a system that works pretty well. And then you go to other departments that do things much more poorly. And Minneapolis is sore. And I don't know Minneapolis that well, but based on some very crude numbers, it's kind of in the middle, slightly to the better side. Um, the, but you go to cities like Albuquerque or Tulsa or Oklahoma City, um, Bakersfield, uh, a lot of small and medium-sized cities out west, and they have rates of cops shooting people that are five, seven times the national average. You know, these differences are, are not 20, 30 percent between the good and the bad. You know, they're, they're 700, 800 percent, um, even more. Um, if we want to reduce people killed by cops, we have to focus on places where cops are shooting a lot of people, not the latest outrage of the week. And we're not doing that. Um, some of that means shifting from a sort of exclusive focus on race uh, into just reducing police violence overall. Um, I don't have the answers. I don't actually know why cops shoot so, so many more people out West. I have some theories. I think you know, are there are fewer cops. I mean, that's one factor, yeah. but there's also different drugs. Crystal meth, I think is worse. Um, they're just gun laws and gun culture is different. And that is probably the single biggest variable. Um, there are lots of things, but some of it is just training. Some of it is training and perception of danger and threat, and some departments do that better than others. So that's the way we could improve things. Um, you know, so about a thousand people are shot and killed by cops every year. Um, another hundred or so are killed without gunfire. Um, that's, I, I, you know, we could probably, with a hard work, we maybe could cut that number in half, maybe a third. Um, that that would be a real gain. But at some point, we also we do have to sort of see the big picture and say, we're, it's never going to be perfect. There's 750,000 cops in America. Um, there's something, you know, like 17,000 police departments. Most are incredibly small. Yeah. Um, 
you know, how much juice are we going to get from that squeeze? Um, especially if it does result in thousands of more people dying as a victim of a violent crime. And of course, you can never show direct cause and effect. And academics will always, you know, say that, uh, you know, we don't know why, why murders are going up. But at some point, you have to accept that when you do something and something else happens, there may be a cause and effect there. Um, and yeah, we got to, too many people are dying in America and, you know, we could take it beyond policing, you know, to, but no, I don't think that police use of lethal force right now is the number one problem in America. Um, and that's despite the fact that I've been dealing with this issue for a long time, you know, yeah. uh, I think it matters. It needs attention, but, but if, but we got to focus on, on, we got to get a grip and focus on the bigger problems right now. Yeah, I think, uh, so I, you know, I, I think I can speak for everyone on this call when I say, yeah, that the, uh, the racists um, who use uh, the greater degree of violence committed in, in poor over, which happen to be overwhelmingly minority communities as an excuse to be more racist, they can go to hell, you know, uh, like that's not, uh, that is antithetical using that as an excuse to go, well, those people, they, you know, basically uh, they, the way that a racist person would frame it is, is there something inherent to those people in those communities when we're talking about a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of people who are perpetrating but, these crimes? You know, you get that same attitude from the from parts of the progressive left. Um, and of course, they don't see it as racism. But the idea that, oh, well, of course, there's violence because they're poor. Well, True. no. Most poor people don't commit violence. Most poor black people don't commit violence. Uh, most immigrants don't commit violence. Most of any group doesn't commit violence. And to say, you know, to, to say, well, well, there's looting, yeah, because, well, they're angry. Well, I get angry too, goddammit. A lot of people get angry. So, I mean, either say that that's, an, that's what people should do when they get angry. Um, you can uh, you can say, well, it's inevitable that happens now in America, but to say somehow that people don't have agency, um, I think is an equal, well, I don't want to say equal, but an, it, I'm making an analogy saying, yeah, that is equally racist um, to saying that, well, they can't control themselves. Yes, they can. True. Um, and how dare you say they can't? True. No, I, 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 that point is very well taken. The sense that somehow, you know, they can't control themselves or how could you ever, given this long historical, you know, the historical inequities that uh, exist for terrible, terrible reasons, um, how could you expect someone to do any better? It's sort of a, uh, um, it, it's, yeah, paternalistic is a nice way to put it. Um, you know, the, uh, whatever the Bush line was, the soft bigotry of low expectations, but just kind of assuming that a person, because of their circumstances, is, is always going to be lesser than you um, is a, uh, I would say, is a racist attitude. It's a, raci it's a racially biased attitude. Especially since you can just go to those neighborhoods and find multitudes more people who aren't doing the bad deed. I mean, that's, that is, you know, it's, it's not hard to disprove, but usually the people saying that don't go to those neighborhoods. No, they don't. And re residential, I mean, the de high degree of, you know, residential segregation, segregated lives we live in this country, I think, fails to expose, especially white people to uh, other communities. And so it leads to these lazy, these very lazy stereotypical tropes that sound you know, progressive and the right thinking way, but just reveal a startling lack of contact with actual real people who are just trying to go about their normal, regular lives. Um, you know, just like you are, they want the exact every, most people want the exact same thing. People want safe streets. They want to be able to feed their kids and they want good schools for their kids. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to for everyone. Yeah. I don't even have kids. So all I, all <laughs> I want are, I want safe streets. You just streets. want safe streets. I want, I want good schools. 
I want good schools for other people. Um, I, you know, I'm willing to pay taxes for that. Um, and I'm a teacher. So of course I care about that. But yeah, it's, this is not people's demands are, are not vastly different among among different groups. Um, what, what, what are, what, 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 so, but back to police reform, you said you had some issues with how it's been pursued in the last 10, 15 years. Is no, so now we hear these slogan, you know, there's lots of slogans, defund the police, abolish the police. Uh, they're all, I think, rooted. But then when you say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It, I think a lot of it boils down to, for the majority of people making those statements, reform the police is what they mean. But I don't know what reform, what is, when you hear now it's amateur hour, you said, so like, a lot of people have gotten religion since May 25th, and now they're saying all sorts of things, ideas we have about reforming the police. I, I've heard a lot of different takes. The one I've heard a lot is like, hey, we should Camdenize. Let's, you know, let's do the Camden model. That's one that's been lifted up. What, what is police reform that, that's been tried? What are models? What works? Like, well, it, it depends. First, you have to say, what's the goal? Um, that's that's and, a and, fair point. And I don't want to hear about police reform when crime isn't mentioned. This is a, one of my problems is um, consent decrees, and some good can come out of them. Um, it is ironic, though, that when defund police came up in Baltimore, uh, the judge said, no, you can't. That's what a consent decree is. No, in fact, this is we're going to increase funding in certain aspects like education and training. Um, let me just say about, I mean, defund, I would, yeah, we can talk about that a bit more. Um, we're not going to get better police for less money. Um, we won't. We're not going to, you know, we can get better police perhaps for the same money. You know, they're, they're sort of two separate factors, but you don't get more for less. So that, let's sort of just accept that. We can get less for less. Um, if the goal is to reduce cops shooting people, um, then we can focus on cops places where cops shoot a lot of people. Um, again, I do think we have to get, there has to be better political leadership defending police use of force when it's justified. Um, you know, it used to be why did cops shoot that poor innocent kid? And now it's why did cops shoot that poor kid with a gun who was shooting at them? <laughs> um, that's, you know, so we, we, there has to be some sense of, no, this, yeah, we, we police use force. Um, and they have, and they have the obligation to defend themselves and others, not just the right, the obligation to. Um, other reform things, how to get rid of bad cops. Uh, that's a tough one. Of course, then what else we have to define a bad cop, is it? Um, but I think we can do that, that type of thing. You know, when cops get tons of complaints, that we, you have to be careful. There's an old maxim, if you don't work, you can't get in trouble. Um, so there is something <laughs> where just because, of, you know, we're cops, lazy cops do nothing, but at least no one complains. Um, that's not the solution either. But if two people... You know, if, cop, if a cop isn't on the street, they're not going to get complaints. I hope not. You really got to work for that if you're sitting inside a police station and someone complains about you. Um, so, yes, cops who are making a lot of arrests, cops who are more aggressive are going to get more complaints. But even within that unit, some cops will get five times the amount of complaints as other cops. Um, this is where police departments need to have system set up. And it doesn't mean automatically that the cop should be fired, uh, but it sure means you should investigate and maybe you should go down that road. Um, this is less a union issue than people think. Um, it, it's really a leadership issue. Um, police chiefs pretty much everywhere can fire cops uh, for cause, uh, but you can show, you know, but you have to be willing to do it and you're going to get sued and you have to, you know, accept that. Um, there could be a better weeding out in the beginning in the academy process. It, it depends on the academy. Um, some departments do weed people out. Most do not. The goal is to get everyone up to the level required and then pass them through because there's pressure to hire cops. Um, 
Yeah, the bottom, and I would never want to set up a quota, but the bottom five or 10% uh, pro- shouldn't be cops. And I think they're actually, it's subjective, of course, but it, they're easier to identify than people uh, believe. Um, you know, and in the first year, even in places with civil service and union protection, um, in the first year, it's, it's easy to fire cops because they don't have that protection yet. Um, there are, by the way, police departments that don't have union protection and civil service. They're at will police departments. There's no study showing that they actually get better policing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, because then, you know, the problem is we don't, you know, then, then they get fired for political reasons or, you know, even so, and they get paid less. And at some point you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. So of course it's complicated. Um, but yes, there, there can be ways to improve um, policing. You can get cops out of cars more. Um, the public wants to, Relationships improve when people have many small neutral or positive reactions with police. If the only interaction with cops is when you're the victim or the offender, um, it's going to create a problem for you and the cops um, because it skews the cop's mind of the neighborhood as well. Um, You got to get cops out of police cars. This is an internal reform, and I don't see any great movement for that in the police department. I've been sort of writing about the wonders, at least in an urban environment, a foot patrol for a long time. Um, I don't quite understand the inertia against. Well, I do a little bit. You know, we, we've we sold the public on this idea that you pick up the phone and cops come in. You know, x number of minutes. Um, that's not a good system for policing. It's it's great if you're having a heart attack. It's great if your house is on fire. Um, but there's actually very little that cops need to respond immediately to. There's some, and you can have a, you know, you can have some rapid response units to do that. Um, but most of the time you're picking up the pieces after the fact, most of the time, time is not of the essence and cops know this too. I mean, so the whole idea, but most police departments have about half of all people are now basically assigned to wait, basically assigned to wait around till someone calls 911 and asks for a cop. And while they're waiting around, they're not doing other things. They're not interacting with the community. They're not doing anything in, that they can't stop immediately to respond to a call. Um, it's a huge drain on the, or on the, on the resources of, of any police department. That's the type of reform that could happen. That's a tough one to um, put into a catchy slogan, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, of course, there's political consequences, because at some point someone will call the cops and like, all right, we'll be there in an hour. We'll send and you yep, know, someone yeah. will die. Um, and that, you know, politicians aren't, even, even if net lives are saved, it's, you know, it's, it's that one life that they're worried about. Um, so the, that's the type of reform that can happen. Um, there are many ways that you could do this stuff, but just saying I want to reform uh, is not the answer. And, and my problem with a lot of the recent reform movement, I think the idea of legitimacy as it's framed is overrated. Um, people who, criminals, maybe shouldn't like cops. Like, I don't know. That doesn't matter. I mean, you know, um, that's fine. Uh, when non-criminals don't like cops, yeah, that the onus is on police departments a bit. And that of course has increased a lot recently. Um, but people don't, people don't talk to cops because they love cops. Um, if witnesses to serious crimes usually talk to cops um, because they're arrested, for something else and use it as leverage to as in a plea bargain agreement. Um, that's not about legitimacy. That, that's about the coercive part of the justice system. Um, 
And it's a huge part of it. And it's a lesser part now, which I think relates to this increase in violence. If no one's getting arrested for various reasons, you don't have the screws to turn on people in a legal way. And I, and I got problems with that part of the job. I'm not sort of defending that system as it is, but it's the system we have. Mm-hmm. Um, people, police have legitimacy when people aren't afraid. Um, if there's shooting and then an ice cream social the next day, that is not as good as no shootings and no ice cream social. Um, so I, the problem with the focus on legitimacy is it's pulled back on a lot of policing that can be effective. Um, there's this, I think, this dream world of the and of the reform movement of the past decade that policing should be hands off um, because hands on creates viral videos. Um, hands on also can injure cops. Um, but this idea that people are going to comply and you should never chase the bad guys because someone might get hurt. At some point, you just have to, at some point, policing involves grabbing the guy. Um, It involves people who aren't complying and people who are resisting. Um, That essential element seems to be lacking from a lot of the policing in the 21st century visions of what, of what policing should be. Um, and, And to go back even a step further, a lot of this comes from, goes back to the 1960s, the Kerner Commission on Crime after riots. Um, and it's a, those, it's a long study. Um, and I'm, at best, I'm not doing it justice. At worst, I'm, you know, it's, it's a big thing. And I'm going to summarize it very quickly. But it, it coined the phrase criminal justice system, which is probably a bad concept because we don't have one system. We've got courts and prisons and policing mm-hmm. that all function independently. That's part of the problem and prosecution. Um, but it, it laid a framework It's that that crime is caused by society. It, it, it laid, it, it very much spelled out the liberal party line that you get in sociology class, um, that poverty is caused, that crime is caused by root causes of poverty and racism and unemployment and bad health care. Um, those things are really important, by the way, and they may be more important than policing, but it's not what I focus on. Um, but no, that's not what causes crime. Um, and in that model, police, the job of police is to arrest offenders and if you want to get more critical, uh, you know, then you get into police as agents of, of racial oppression. But that model is laid out by the Kerner Commission, um, which is still sort of what we're debating today. What is the role of police in crime prevention? And it wasn't until the crime drop in the 90s um, that started in New York City where police got back in the crime prevention game. Um, and that was a very big shift again where we started holding police accountable for crime. Police always believed they could prevent crime, but hell, if crime's going up and people say, it's not your fault, let's fix society, you go, okay, um, as long as I can arrest a few offenders, I'm doing my job and, and avoiding scandal. That was the other big thing. Um, so that, that again, that, that fundamental role of police and crime prevention is what we still haven't, we'll never resolve it, but that's what we're still debating. It's, it's not a new concept, um, but we have to accept that police are part of the solution in terms of crime. Um, until without, if we don't do that, nothing's going to get better. Right. So, and I mean, regardless of uh, whether or not giving people health care reduces crime, you could just say that's a good in and of itself. It might, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's a good. It, and, and you know what? It might in the long run, especially mental health care. Yeah. So let's do that. But to to get to you know to to harp on defund for a moment. Um, I'm a tax and spend Democrat. I want to improve these things and it won't all be efficient and that's fine. Um, the, the lack of mental health care is, is outrageous in this nation. I, you know, let's use Western Europe as a model 
countries that do it better. And we do, again, have this gun thing that will always limit our, our ability to get to their levels of low violence and decent society, I think. Um, but we can, we can improve. Police have to deal with the cards that are dealt, and they can do that. Uh, if we want to set up these alternative systems, let's do it. It doesn't have to come from the roughly 7% of the municipal budget that goes to policing. Um, and that's what it is, by the way, when you, when you include state spending as well, because it depends on the state, how schools are funded and that kind of thing. But of dollars spent in a city, about, give or take, 7% goes to police, the police department. Um, what about the other 93%? What about raising taxes so there's more money? Um, the problem with defund police, I, it might be a great opportunity to fix these things that I do really want to see fixed. Um, putting attention on, on segregation, on mental health care, on schools, on gun policy. Though that's, uh, that's such a tough thing to get into. Um, but we can do that. And the second we violence goes down and police aren't getting called for people in mental crisis, then we can defund police. Um, it's very easy to judge demand for police because we do have a system where people call 911 and 311. Um, but a lot of it is bad policy. The, the, this, I, I don't, and maybe I'm just not listening to the right people. I'm not hearing specific programs about how to deal with these issues other than spend more. Um, and I think we should spend more. We're not, gonna, we're not going to improve these other things by spending less either. But, um, but we have to also spend it productively. Um, there might be laws that have to be changed. For instance, regarding commitment to mental health cases. Um, people go in and out of the men- what, what little mental health care we have. People go in and out and every time it's an incident. Um, there's no, you know, there's no follow-up. There's people can decline treatment. Uh, some, you know, maybe that certain people shouldn't be allowed to decline treatment. Um, the standard, and it depends on the state and the situation, but generally, you know, you have to be about to kill yourself or someone else to be forcibly committed. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors have a lower standard, but, you know, maybe that standard needs to be lessened. You know, maybe someone has to make the subjective judgment that you are, this is not good for you to leave you out here on the street in this condition because you are dysfunctional. Um, and so, but, the, you know, that they're, people who are more vocal on that against that position. But I think that's, you know, the idea that people should be living on the streets. Um, it's not just an issue of housing. Some of it is. Some of it is an issue of, of people not being able to function for various reasons. So we, we should address these issues. Um, but if we do it by dismantling police departments and increasing violence, we're not going to be able to. Right. And uh, I mean, but kind of an, an elephant in the room, maybe uh, I haven't, I haven't touched on it yet in this conversation by asking you, but I think that an underlying theme of the conversation recently is like, yeah, all these things are true, but you know, the truth is that if you're black or you're brown in this country, the cops are going to harass you. They're going to mess with you. They're going to give you hell. And so you always are going to have to be, have that in the back of your mind that the police are going to mess with you. And that's just an underlying truth of being um, not a white person in this country. And so if, if we can't address that, that's, this is all really about that. That might be the linchpin. Um, I do think recently, at least that is, is slightly overblown, at least in the minds of white people, but it's an issue. Um, That's probably the single biggest. Yeah. Elephant in the room. Um, there are many black people uh, who are not harassed by police on a daily basis, just like there are many white people. I mean, again, that needs to be said. Um, policing is different in different neighborhoods. 
Um, it needs to be different in different neighborhoods. That's part of the problem too. You don't, you know, police in a safe suburb should not be policing the same in a place where 10% of men in their lifetime are getting murdered. Um, that, and, and, and police along with any intentional uh, racism and brutality, police make mistakes on top of that. Um, and I understand the idea and even believe the idea that yes, it's worse when agents of the state paid for, by the people do bad things as opposed to when criminals do bad people. Cause at least, you know, we can, when criminals do bad things, there is a legal system that's set up to deal with that. And when cops do bad things, they do often um, get away with it. Um, so we, ha- we, yes, we do have to make that better. Uh, but the, is the problem fundamentally, fundamentally police is the problem society um, to some extent. And, and, you know, the answer of course, is a little bit of all of the above, uh, I, but we have so many problems in society and the only people we really seem to blame are um, right now are police and to, and to some extent teachers, by the way. Um, we have, there's racial disparity in everything in America. So yeah, let's try and fix that. Um, and, we, and, and we can improve it. We have improved it. Um, but then we have to f- stop focusing just on policing. Uh, f- uh, we could, if policing, and I don't even know what it means, you know, we're magically perfect tomorrow. I'm still somehow interacting with people and never doing anything mistaken or bad. First of all, there'd still be racial disparity in policing, but that's not going to fix society. Um, I like to focus on the fixing of police because it's what I do for a living. Uh, but I would urge other people to, to think a bit broader. Um, also think about police departments you're not focusing on. The focus tends to be on the big city police departments, which partly because of accountability and focus are better overall than policing in suburbs, in rural areas and so on. Um, those police departments need a bit more attention too. We're, we're protesting the police departments that do things better by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean they're doing, you know, that I, even if you can say, well, we still should be protesting, that's fine. But why don't we look at the ones that are doing things worse? If the, the goal is to make things better, if the goal is just to be angry and, and, and yell at cops, well, great. Um, you know, congratulations. You're doing a good job at that. Uh, but I don't see the road. I don't see the end game here. Um, I don't see the path to success. You have to figure out the actual problems and then the policies to address them. Um, I don't have the answer to America's centuries old, you know, issues of, of, of race. Um, but I do think historically uh, and with the exception of the past few years, things have been getting better and they've been getting better because people identified problems and worked to fix them. Um, but it's tough. Um, you know, no one's, I would say an elephant in the room. And, and, and this, you know, I, I don't want to sound like some Charles Murray conservative because I'm not, but we also, we don't talk about family structure. Uh, we've also sort of ceded that to the conservatives where we pretend it doesn't exist. I mean, one of the things I saw when I was a cop, you know, 20 years ago, but you go into a house and there are two kids on a, you know, bed without a sheet and there's no functioning adult. Um, there's no father around and mom's, you know, drunk in the corner. Um, that is a real problem, but we don't talk about that. Um, it's blaming the victim. Well, I don't, maybe it is blaming the victim, but I, I don't think it is, but the victim should be those kids there, but they've got, they're, you know, they're, they're not even in school yet and no one's talking to them. No one's reading to them. Um, sometimes no one's loving them. Uh, that's a real problem. 
um, that problem isn't going to be fixed through police reform. Um, that, you know, is the greater issue of society. Um, but police get called to the house. And so police, you know, police do end up dealing with that situation. But I don't, again, I don't, the solutions aren't easy and it's going to take a generation or two. Um, but yeah, if, pe- if people don't have, I'm not talking about married two-parent families either. I'm talking about one-parent families. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's often lacking. Yeah, and I, I mean, because um, there, are, there are public policy questions you can address um, and we should address anywhere we can make an improvement. Um, like uh, definitionally, why wouldn't you do it if, you, if, the, if the cost is within reason or within scope? But these are, these are the squishier uh, cultural issues, uh, norms, patterns of behavior, um, you know, uh, that, that are, that are harder and seem like, again, if you focus on them, uh, you're just, uh, you know, you're just a victim blamer, uh, you know, conservative saying it's all, it's all your fault. And, uh, again, uh, both. You know, and what I like to say is, you know, people need help mm-hmm. and they're not getting that help and it's help is different for different people. My brother lives in Amsterdam. I've done, I've lived there for a while too. And I've, I've done a lot of research with the cops in Amsterdam. So I, I know that system relatively well. Um, and when you, my brother has two kids and his, my brother and his wife has two kids. When you have a kid there, um, somebody from the state comes and knocks on your door and says, how are things? Oh, and also let me make sure there's food in your fridge. Um, and, you know, in America, that would be seen as some nanny state intrusion. But why, why don't, yeah, if you say everything's fine, please go away. Okay. I mean, unless there's clear signs of abuse right, or something. Right, right, right. But why don't we offer that help? The cost of failure is so high. Um, you know, it's, it's usually not one thing that makes people dysfunctional. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a multitude of small things. Um, maybe right now all you need is help cleaning up your house. Um, because for whatever reason, you can't because you're depressed. You can't get out of, you know, or you're high, what, you know, whatever reason. But your house is a mess. Um, maybe that would help. You know, I mean, these are cheap solutions. And I wouldn't expect the world from things like that. But just to to tell people that they're not alone, to tell people that there's help being offered. These are ways we can do it, but we, we, we don't. So. Yeah. And especially in places with, you know, where social capital is low. So you think about kind of, um, are there ways to manufacture that uh, in the absence of it? So that, yeah, you want to build up civil society and such that people can address these problems within their own community um, without maybe as much government intervention. But in the absence of that, what do we, what do you do before civil society moves in or is, or is created, um, you know, because you kind of take that for granted when you're in a community with, you know, rich and robust connections between people. And, and I think people are very quick to assume other, um, everyone is like them. Um, you know, people talk, I mean, there's, again, this is America, there's racial disparity everywhere, and you deal with education. Well, if you, if you read to your kid every night and, you know, or have a, enough money to hire a nanny and, you know, your kid, even a bilingual one at that, um, yeah. and then you and then you go to a school, well, you probably wouldn't go to a school, by the way, with the kid who comes from a dysfunctional family, um, despite any progressive leanings, it just wouldn't be the right fit, you know, yeah. but you have another kid who has none of that. And then, and then you blame the teacher and you say, why are there, you know, uh, that that's, that's the disconnect with reality we're having here that, you know, some kids at a very early age are so much better prepared, um, both in terms of being able to not be disruptive and just in terms of the knowledge they have. Um, there, you know, there's only teachers are important. I, I have a vested interest in saying that, but um, teachers are important, but there's only so much they can do with, 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 
you know, they only have the kid for eight hours a day, you know, for however many months a year. Um, but we don't talk about that. And again, we don't even have the language to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I mean, my uh, family is full of educators. So, you know, I've uh, been well-versed in that. And yeah, I mean, they only have however many hours and they're one of 25 or one of 30 children. Um, I mean, so it's just no substitute. Te- schools are incredibly important and teachers are incredibly important, but what they can do, um, they're not parents. Uh, I mean, they, they, yeah, they're, they're, mentors, their coaches, they can take on that figure and inspire people, but to expect, but it's, they're the, they're the people who we pay. So we can be kind of critical and they're the service provider. Um, so we can have debates. They're the ones who we can manipulate what they do, at least somewhat through public policy changes and stuff like that. You- and I, I know the organizations, you know, I'm thinking, I'm not religious, but I, 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 I hope you are. Um, <laughs> I've been accused of such. Um, but I think there is a role, uh, in a way, maybe I have a certain luxury, whether it's um, educationally or financially, not to, fee- not, to be- not to believe, quite frankly, not to feel I need what religion has to offer. Um, but I do think that, you know, faith-based organizations um, from, you know, I say faith-based in the broad sense, or just straight up, you know, churches, mosques, and synagogues um, yeah. can help serve a role. Um, I... But people don't, you know, so, so there has to be some structure and system where people know that they're part of a group um, and know that they're loved and, and have something to believe in. Um, and, it, you know, it could, and it's, to some extent, sports can fill that role. I mean, you know, there are various things, but the problem is what happens when kids have none of that. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is the issue. But um, we're, we're certainly moving away from my field of expertise here so i'm a little that's okay i don't want to okay. go too far no, down don't. this road but I'll, I'll pick it up no i mean i i, I do think that but i uh, want to emphasize it partly to just you know in the broader sense that um yeah these aren't police matters and shouldn't be and in that sense um i agree with some of the uh philosophy behind the defund movement um but we can't put the cart before the court the horse and, and we need to have a have these systems set up um new york has shown a a failure of extreme magnitude in, in homeless uh, funding and policy recently. And I mentioned this just as sort of a warning of how defund shouldn't work. Um, there are estimated 60,000 homeless people in New York, give or take. Um, the budget now for just Department of Homeless Services is $3 billion a year. Um, that's $50,000 per homeless man, woman, and child in New York. Um, you'd think we could actually solve homelessness with that kind of money. Um, but we're not. Uh, and part of it is because I think a lot of the provide, because the money isn't going to the people that need help. It's going to providers who, some of whom are very well intentioned, some of whom have a profit interest in maintaining the problem. Um, you know, there's, of course, there's waste, fraud, abuse, and corruption in that 3 billion. Uh, but we doubled under Mayor de Blasio, the funding for this doubled, uh, and there's no quantifiable measure of success. And not only that, in many ways, the problem got worse because while, so that, just to put it into perspective, first of all, $3 billion is real money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a little less than the entire budget for the City University of New York system. Oh, wow. um, the police department budget is just under $6 billion. So we're spending half as much on Department of Homeless Services as we are on policing in New York City. During this time, um, visible street homelessness got worse. 
And this was again, this was by design. Well, maybe not intended. It was by policy, maybe um, because we stopped enforcement of quality of life issues. So um, people, the cops became homeless outreach workers and they offered services and 95% of people declined those services. And then the cops said, okay, and walked away. Um, leaving somebody in a condition, living on the subway should not be an acceptable choice. Mm-hmm. Let me just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, let, you know what, let's give them Central Park. Uh, people go, no, we can't do that. It will become a shanty town. Well, yeah, well, it's better in the subway. We, we do draw the line somewhere. We say homeless people can't camp in Central Park, but, the, but it came down from the mayor's office that uh, homeless people can camp on subways. That to me is a weird political choice. Yeah. Um, calls to the police for homeless related issues doubled at the same time spending for homeless services doubled. So n- we weren't defunding police then, but still we weren't solving the problem. These were policy issues. Um, until we figure out solutions that work. I mean, and I'm not saying we shouldn't fund homelessness and homeless solutions, uh, but at some point we have to say, you know what, this isn't working. We got to try something else here. Uh, and we well, and I mean, Minneapolis is uh, moving down that path. There's been a, a, a huge explosion in the number of homeless people camping um, in, pub, in the public parks. And in fact, there was a, uh, one of our larger parks in the center of our city, again, in the same Powderhorn neighborhood that was featured in the New York Times about the uh, neighborhood reconsidering its relationship with the cops. There was a huge encampment of, of several hundred tents. And the, you can imagine the order of magnitude in terms of the amount of crime and the degrading of the quality of life in that neighborhood and the lack of safety for people living in that encampment, not just to mention the neighborhood itself, it was a huge disaster. And the park board, which has no mandate to deal with homelessness, nor any expertise in this field whatsoever, took it upon itself to kind of begin to address this issue. And instead of helping people actually, I think, help the problem and, and make it worse. So it's a, you you see kind of where good intentioned people n- not knowing what they're doing creates a whole host of harms um, and, uh, and makes problems worse. And we're seeing that here in Minneapolis. And those are, but those are political decisions um, and the politicians need to be held accountable. Um, you don't have to allow camping in parks. Now, maybe you want to, I mean, again, yeah. you know, but these, but let's have an honest debate. Let's not say, well, because there's inequality in society, this is why we have this. No, this is, we have this because we allow it. And maybe to some extent allowing it encourages it. Um, maybe people aren't, maybe it's people have to make tough choices to say there's a better system. Um, there, I don't know if, if there's a right to shelter there. You know, New York is a right to shelter state. Um, it's in, it's, it's a a state constitutional issue here. Um, So there is shelter. People choose to decline it. Um, And they decline it sometimes for very good reasons. It's not safety, by the way. It's not the primary reason which people think. It's about rules. Mm -hmm. It's about being treated like an adult. It's about being able to drink in your room. It's about being able to bring in dates. It's about not having a curfew, not being kicked out during the day, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe we need better carrots. Um, Maybe we need more sticks Um, or maybe some combination of that. But, to sort of hold up public street homelessness as to show this see society's messed up um, is not respectful to it's using homeless people as pawns to some extent for other people's political visions. And not only do I think it's not good for homeless individuals. Um, I mean, there are, you know, medical facts to back that up. At some point we do have to care about the rest of society. It's not only about 
the homeless people. It's not only about criminals in the criminal justice system. Just to try to link it back to criminal justice a bit. Um, yeah, people also have a right to, uh, you know, go to, to not have public space usurped. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, some of it is economic, some of it is about housing, but a lot of it isn't. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. The debate gets very slippery because people say, well, we need more housing. Okay. But this person can't handle housing because they've got drug issues, mental health issues, health issues, and so on. Um, so that isn't about housing. So we're, so why aren't we helping this person and letting them stay in the park isn't good for him or his neighbors or the community. Um, there's a dishonesty to this discussion here that um, is, is troublesome to me. I don't under, and I don't understand where the political leaders, like they're not the adults in the room. I, I don't understand why they're not capable, at least in Minneapolis even right now, of having the adult conversation um, or they're doing a poor job of leading it. And uh, I mean, I guess we get what we deserve in terms of. Uh, in, I think because a lot of it's become ideology. Yeah. It's not about policy and solutions. It's, you know, ideologues. I don't like ideologues of any side. Um, I'll say the fascists scare me more, but there is a left-wing ideology too. And, um, you know, it's about, it's about a lot of it's about a worldview and slogans. And it's, it's, and that's, um, it's not working. I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who still, you know, vote for people who, you know, why are you voting for them? Well, because they're progressive. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And maybe that side has gone a little too far and you I now actually to think about you can't just vote for the person most to the left um because you are a good lefty you have to think about what being a good lefty actually means um and you know that 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 might be the issue of you know a pendulum swinging back a little bit I don't know I, I think so too especially in I mean cities like New York or cities like Minneapolis where they are one-party towns largely um you know that there's uh that within the, you know, people aren't used to uh, maybe the uh, intra-party squabbles or whatever, or ideological um, polls within a, within a particular movement that, that at least for a while, there's been, it swung all the way to one side, probably for a lot of reasons, probably in reaction to who's the occupant of the White House, you know, has felt even more, uh, I think a lot more pressure to, to move as far away as possible from that person. And for good reason. Yeah. You know, and so absolutely, but that's not, uh, just being a reactionary against him is not uh, in and of itself a coherent uh, uh, is not at all a coherent uh, ideology or political philosophy. And well, the problem with if you have an ideological approach is then you do end up defending violence, looting and bad behavior from the left. And, you know, uh, just because it's anti-Trump, um, we, that's not good enough. Um, you can be anti-Trump and not, and I mean, yeah, I'm thinking, well, you don't yeah, have to, yeah, you don't have to support, uh, you, you don't have to support the president and you don't have to support rioting like these two, you know, and I cannot tell you how much when, I mean, things were getting out of control in Minneapolis. I mean, it was scary and people were this, defending it. Yeah. Um, and you know, in, in the future, but they're, they're, they're it's, it, I, I, I just know, cause this happened in Baltimore in 2015 that two years from now, people are like, no, no one defended that. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, People were defending it, but, but some were actively defending it and many more people were excusing it. Um, And, you know, I I don't know where this fits into the ideological debate, but the the left cannot, I'm saying this politically. um, I'm saying this against Trump. The left cannot cede law and order to the right. Um, We need to have our own vision 
of a fair and just society that includes law. Now, we can't use the phrase law and order because we've already seeded that. Okay. But we need a vision that involves the, the lowercase law and order um, so we can have a fair and functioning society. Um, and that has yet to emerge. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully under Joe Biden, it will emerge. <laughs> well, who, know, who knows, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I scrupulously avoid uh, any sort of endorsements of political candidates. But I mean, the reality is in a city, the context of the city of Minneapolis, um, I mean, it's a, it's a progressive city, it's a democratic city. And so if the, if the left does not have that a coherent, um, you know, kind of understanding of what law and order could look like, like lowercase law and order. It's not going to happen in this city because, uh, you know, I mean, think, I just think how bad did New York have to be to elect a Republican, you know? I know, I know that might happen <laughs> and that might happen again. Uh, we'll see. Um, but you know what that vision is? I don't think it's not going to come from Minneapolis. It's not going to come from Portland or Seattle. Um, those cities are too white. And I think that creates problems among progressive white people that they don't see race correctly. Um, it's going to come from perhaps a city like New York that is majority minority, mm-hmm. um, that is truly diverse. Um, it might come from Chicago, which is less diverse. It's more, you know, uh, it's, it's becoming less diverse. Well, I, I don't, I, I, when I say diverse, I mean real diversity, not just one third black, one third Hispanic, one third white. The divisions sure. are starker in Chicago. New York is more blended um, in large part because of, immigration, uh, and also national migration. Um, it's got to come from, yeah, a, a city that, that cannot always get sort of pushed to the left by saying you don't, and it's just not going to come from those white places. I, it was my prediction. Um, you know, prove me wrong, Minneapolis. Prove I, me wrong, Seattle. I, I think Minneapolis is not going to prove you wrong at all. And I would be, speaking of Minneapolis, you've been very generous with your time. I would be remiss though, if I didn't ask you. So, I mean, a vision here in Minneapolis is of um, changing our charter. So basically removing the, in the city charter, the police are a named department or agency. So we have to have them. And there's a movement afoot to remove that from our charter. So we don't have to have a police department. The, uh, the proponents say, well, of course we would still have police, but they, we wouldn't have to, we may, it's a choice as opposed to a, uh, as opposed to a must have. And actually we wouldn't have a police chief anymore. We would have a director of a department of, I don't know, public safety and take a holistic um, public health based approach. And we would have some violence prevention officers, but we'd, we'd figure out. So basically the proponents are saying, remove that from the charter. Let's take a year to figure out what we want this department to look like, and then we'll implement it. What do you think of that? I would love it to happen. Um, we, you know, policing, we have the policing we have for very specific historical and political reasons. Um, in the ideal world, I would think that could work. I, again, I don't think it will work quite, mm-hmm. quite frankly. I either think um, you're going to just reinvent the wheel and it'll be a wobbly, more wobbly wheel. Um, that's a possibility. Um, you know, if, if you want to change policing also, you got to, you have to increase the diversity, the ideological diversity of the pool of policing. Is that going to change? Who would want to become a cop now? Um, that's an issue. There, there's a greater, this, there are parallels. There, I mean, this has already happened to some extent. In the 20th century, what was called the professionalization, professionalization uh, movement or the reform movement of policing. It, was, it started out as progressive and then got co-opted by conservatives like and J. Edgar Hoover and uh, LAPD come to mind. But to remove 
police from politics, from the whims of, of politicians was a goal. Um, this sounds, for, this, you need somebody, you need the buck, you need a leader who, who, who is held accountable. If you have a commission of politicians, it's just inviting disaster. You cannot run an, an organization, a police, a police organization in that manner, or no one's done it yet. Okay. Maybe they'll, again, um, so I, I would, I, I don't think that would work. Um, there's another risk though, is look, yeah, if you want to change the charter and figure out how to do it better, that's fine. Um, but you might end up with worse policing. So, you know, and then at least say we tried, we meant well and we failed, but that won't happen either. Mm -hmm. People keep digging. Um, You also want to make sure though that uh, police, you you want to, you want the, you want to be able to fire the chief if need be. Um, So I don't know how you would do that in a system where you have a committee of, of politicians in charge. Um, it's not direct democratic control of a police department, but in most places, the police commissioner chief serves at the whim of the mayor who is elected. So again, in one party cities, you know, it's, it's, it's not ideal, but it's still, at some point it is a civilian job held by someone who is respond, held by someone who can be fired by someone kind of responsible to the citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But um, if you Take away that in LA after the riot, right after the Rodney King riots of 1992, um, Daryl Gates did a, I think a horrible job, um, both before and during and after the riots, but the city wanted to fire him and found out they couldn't. Um, his job security ironically was because of the reform movement in policing that wanted to take politics out of the police department. Um, and I think they ended up giving him a golden parachute and they got him to quit. But, there was a moment when people said, what do you mean we can't fire the police chief? So that's sort of one extreme. Um, I don't know what this, you need to get, a, I mean, you need a good police chief. What just happened in Seattle yesterday where the, the police yeah, chief Yeah, she, she, she quit, right? They put, she, yeah. she felt pushed out. Well, they cut, yeah, they cut her salary in half. So when you say, what does reform mean? That's not reform. Okay. Um, they're going to get a worse police chief now. Uh, like what a weird vindictive thing to do. And she also said like all this talk about reform and cutting the budget and nobody spoke to me. Like how disrespectful. And she, I don't, you know, I, I, and she happens to be a black woman. Um, I don't, it, it, I would still be disrespectful if she were a white man, but it's even more disrespectful that she is a African American woman, reformer police chief, and they don't talk to her. And then they cut her salary in half. Um, how is that going to make things better? I, I, I just, it's inconceivable to me. So, you know, yes, you may have to break the proverbial eggs to make an omelet, um, but you have to have a realistic vision and a path to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I am all for other cities experimenting uh, with this kind of thing. Um, if I were there, I would not be for that because I don't think it's going to work, but maybe it will, and then we can spread it elsewhere. Sure. Oh, and my last question, though, you've served as a cop. Are cops, and you worked, so you worked shoulder to shoulder with a ton of police. The, the reputation of police among some people is that cops are racist or they have a racially insensitive attitudes underlying a lot of their behavior, kind of based on their experience or whatever, that they are, you know, that they view minorities as lesser than. And is that, is that your experience as serving as a cop? I mean, that's a stereotype that I have heard plenty of times. It's too that, simplistic. It's, 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 um, it's, it's more complicated. I mean, yes, cops are as varied as there are the number of cops. Um, it depends on the place. You know, I probably have a slightly um, 
overly positive view of cops because of my experience and because of where I live. Um, I, you know, I've, I've never been to Minneapolis. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what cops are like there. I will say you have to, cops are representative of the pool from which they're recruited. Um, that means it's a very conservative pool. It means the white cops voted for Donald Trump. Um, take that for what you will. Uh, so yes, in that sense, but then the answer is you need to get people who have a more diversity in their ideological opinions um, as cops. There has been research on, and some of this is older research, some of it relates to implicit bias research. Um, it is hard, as strange as it sounds, it is hard to find a relationship between those views and measurable police actions. Um, there is no research that shows that black cops are less brutal than white cops. In fact, there's some that indicates otherwise, but that often relates to the neighborhoods that black cops are policing in. Um, from a cop perspective, and this is, um, especially if you're a minority cop and then having some white person yell at you for being racist, uh, but from all cops often feel that they are the only people that care about victims. Um, and it's not, cops deal with victims more than they deal with criminals, keep in mind. Um, and there's racial disparity in those victims, especially in victims of violence. And it's cops who are dealing with grieving families who just lost a loved one for no reason. Um, it's cops who are trying to solve these cases. And that impacts cops to a great degree. And so they, when people say you're racist, again, it's, you know, how we define racist. Hey, you know, by one argument, we're all racist. So then it loses its meaning almost. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it, cops are out there at least. Um, yes, and they have prejudices and biases, um, some of which are based on reality and some of which are based on fiction and some of which are based on their own, you know, background and isolation. Um, but at least it's rooted in, in a reality that I think a lot of the critics don't have any context, don't have any, aren't in touch with. Um, so just, yeah, to, to make any blanket statement about any group, first of all, is overly, overly simplistic. Um, but the question is, what does that mean and how does it affect behavior? Um, I think a lot of cops are assholes to people, <laughs> um, not based on race, just be based on their personality and job frustration and lack of accountability. Um, I, I've heard many times, well, the cop treated me, so white person saying, a cop treated me rudely. Imagine how they treat a black person. Exactly the same. <laughs> They're treating people rudely. Um, to think that every... I, you know, I'm saying things that are contradictory here, um, but, you know, life is complicated. There, I don't have a simple worldview that fits all this in. Um, yes, race matters in America and we need to address it. But to, um, and, and to some extent, we need to see things through racial lenses, but to only see it through that lens, um, to only see policing as an issue of race. Let me go back to where I policed. It's a majority black city. It's a majority black police department. It's got a black power structure. Everybody in a high position from the mayor to the prosecutor to the police chief is black. Um, and you're telling a black cop who's policing an all black neighborhood who grew up there that he's somehow racist because of his role. Like it doesn't register. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to that person. And that person understands their problems in society. It's not that that person is race blind. It's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a black man in America, but it's just, you know, you're, 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 you don't get it. Um, it's not what it's about at its core.
Yeah. That is, it's, this is, these are endlessly fascinating conversations. Let, let me just, on the flip side, I mean, yeah. if you've got some group of whites who really are racist and cops, yeah, you got to go on social media, find them and say, Get rid of I don't them, care right? if I, and I don't care if I can't prove it's affecting your behavior. I still don't want you as a cop, God damn it. Right. Um, Cause this isn't good. Um, so there is, there is that side too, but. Well, is this um, real? I mean, you see like these, uh, these are social media posting. So I'm always very skeptical of these the conspiracy things, but these, you know, I, I think it's out of California, you know, all these tattoos that there's these like white supremacist gangs that have infiltrated law enforcement or overrepresented in law enforcement. I mean, and I don't know. Um, I don't know California. You know, my first sense when I when, when I first heard that, I kind of roll my eyes and go, oh, I doubt it. Um, people, whatever people making weird comments on Facebook. Cops do have cops need gallows humor, by the way. Um, and the world isn't politically correct. That said, maybe it is true. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't. Uh, so let's find out and deal with it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not inconceivable in places that you could have some infiltration of of white supremacists and law enforcement. Um, so I don't want to say that's impossible. I don't want to say it's not happening. Um, but no, that is not the major problem in law. It's a major problem where it happens, but it's not, that's not the major issue right now in law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it investigate if that's a, the claim is being made. It's something that's first, I mean, certainly worth looking into my gosh, um, because if it were true, uh, throw the we bums also, out. You know, we also haven't mentioned that just briefly. I want to mention yeah, no, please talked do. about ideology and race. Um, people, I think forget that policing is still very working class and we don't talk about class in America because we don't have it, of course. Right. But, a certain, <laughs> but it's a very working class occupation. Um, and the white collar college educated classes of America um, either pretend that doesn't exist or pretend it doesn't matter or pretend that they're all bad people because they're working class. Um, I think th- seeing things through that class lens helps explain issues a bit helps people understand things um for in places uh where among my undergraduate students in new york city um they're almost all minority and they're almost all children of immigrants or immigrants themselves and they are trying to break into america's working class um in communities like that uh the police department and other government jobs represents a, a way up the the class ladder. Um, and it, and that disproportionately benefits, um, immigrants and minorities. Um, you also, you know, you risk taking that away in some of this policing. That's now some police departments, of course, in more, in less immigrant areas and are, uh, you know, they don't have that. It's a different situation in places. Um, but, but it's, it's working. I just want to throw that out there. Good people need to remember, um, that it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a very working class, uh, by and large, um, and in some ways, you know, it creates a certain amount of diversity as people are shunted into certain occupations because of their upbringing or lack of college education. Um, and I don't know what the college requirements there are. I would guess two years, but yeah, I don't probably know an associate. Yeah. Um, uh, in some ways, be, uh, because of the way that we divert people by class here, it'll you get um you get a certain high and higher caliber. You know if if that same person had grown up with two parents who were teachers like I did and, you know, went to fancy Ivy, I went to public high school, but fancy Ivy league schools after that, um, they, you know, I'm, I'm no smarter than them. They would have been in that same pool, but instead they're cops. Um, so 
um, sometimes I'm surprised, and I shouldn't be surprised, but sometimes I am surprised at how many um, smart intellectual cops there are who have sort of, who, who think about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also part of policing. And so you, you need a system that encourages that. And the system often doesn't, by the way. Uh, but there's a lot of talent in there um, <clears throat> that police departments could learn from. You know, some of this is just organizational theory, but, you know, you need conduct exit interviews with people when they leave. Yeah. Uh, things like that. So I'm just trying to, I'm throwing these out sort of at the end just to, you know, I don't know, put ideas in people's mind, present things that might to a certain extent be lower hanging fruit of reform of ways to make things better. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 I just wish I were more optimistic. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's easy to be pessimistic in 2020. And uh, I find myself there quite a lot too. And, and just kind of wondering what, what the people in charge sort of being terrified that they have no idea at every single level seem to have no idea what they're doing. And that's dispiriting. Um, but we are a, a self-governing people. So uh, you know, that the onus is, but we're also people where you can run away from problems. It's true. And, you know, um, the idea of like, I mean, the tax base is localized. Every, everything is um, people forget. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm in a city, I'm going to stay in a city. And I do look down on people who leave the city, especially if they leave the city because of lower quality of life based on policies they advocated for. Um, you're seeing that in New York now. Uh, but this is a country where you actually can run away from a lot of your problems. Um, and I don't, you know, that's even a bigger issue. Um, but this idea that we're all in it together, I wish that were true. Right. Um, yeah. It's not. People leave cities. Sell your house, move to the next suburb out. I mean, in Minneapolis, it's very easy to do. And I mean, you hear people, I hear people I never thought, you know, I heard talk to someone the other week. They said, I never thought in a million years I would say this. You know, this is a person with the perfect progressive credentials, but they're also, they're like looking at what's happening and just going, this is insane. They said, for the first time I considered moving, if this happens, you know, and things don't get better in my neighborhood, moving out of the city. And, and it's like, these are, people are, people get pushed. Um, people have limits. It's, it's privilege, by the way, to be able to do that. Of course, let's not, you know. That, yeah. That oh, absolutely. As well. Absolutely. Yeah. But then um, I think also too, when you bring up the class dimension of things, um, <laughs> when you, this is my son, Kyle, when you bring up the class dimension, hey, I'm almost done. Uh, that like, you see some of those videos of the protests and like, one of the cheers is that or jeers are being made towards the cops is they're uneducated. You know, the cosmetology school, you need more training than to go be a police officer. And so there's a lot of thinly veiled uh, and not even veiled, but open class disdain for the cops um, and for other. And, that, and, and that's, yeah, that that's what I was trying to get at before, but you did it better than I did. Um, there, there's resentment on both sides. Um, and, I'm not saying it's good on either side, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when cops are rude, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it, it's, it, there's, there's class resentment um, and they're thrilled to be able to arrest some smart mouth white college kid. Um, and that's not a, you know, that's not a healthy no. <laughs> society, but I mean, it, it's, 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 yeah, we, it's, we should address that with just a fraction of the, effort that we address that we're sort of talking about everything else. And that's certainly, I, I see a dynamic at play in all of this that is really not being addressed. What are the, you know, the, the class dynamics the, that are at play between 
the protesters and you know the people who are on the streets, the various different <laughs> manifestations of protest and what they're protesting against the the cops. I mean, it's it's a fascinating, I think, underexplored aspect of what's happening at this moment. The, the class, actually, everything that's happening with the pandemic, everything like the 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 kind of what that exposes about the divides in our country between the various classes of people. Like we don't talk a lot about it, and and I think we would be better served if if we just acknowledge that it's a reality or or at least part of the equation um we'd be better served as a as a public so yeah that sounds almost like a great outro <laughs> that is segue. a great that's outro segue. Segue. that's it that's or, it or decent that's at least i guess we could do better but it was <laughs> it was a good plan it was well peter that's all i got man you were so generous with your time so i really appreciate it well dave i appreciate it. i mean as you can see i like talking about this stuff and- heck yeah all that's I can what, hope that's is what that I was some good come some good comes out of it. Um, but thank yeah, thanks for the uh, for the good conversation. Thank you.